Well, this is the last week in the Needs series, and if you're new to the series, let me just tell you what this has been. We've been doing five talks to try to help the couples at New Spring Church based off of what couples at New Spring have told us they want to work on. That's why we call the series Needs. Couples have told us these are the five things that we really need to work on most. So this week we're in the very last talk in the series, and we're talking about something called resilience. And, and it was very interesting as people would take the assessment that we used as a, as a means to sort of get these topics built up. People would take the assessment and they would sort of tell us, man, this is the thing that I'm really feeling the worst about. Because on the assessment, it would give both husband and wife a, a measure of where they were on resilience on a scale of 0 to 100. And ladies, on average, got a 64. And men, on average, got a 69. And I had so many people coming and telling me, I flunked this part of the test. I got an F. It's like a 60-something. And we'd have to say, it's not, it's not a test. It's not a letter grade, right? And yet, there was something there that we knew we needed to work a little bit on resilience. And what we're gonna, the way we're going to define resilience for today's purposes is we're going to say resilience is the capacity to keep it together when life seems unreasonable or overwhelming. To see, the temptation is when life seems unfair, it seems like it's too much on us at once, the temptation is to fall apart, to disintegrate, right? And so we're going to talk about what does the Bible tell us about how to keep it together even in the middle of those times. Now, one thing is sure, whether you're in a relationship or not in this room, this will apply to you because we all need to work on resilience. But if you are married, you know that marriage, especially if you have kids, gives you tons of opportunities to practice trying to be resilient, right? To try to practice keeping it together. I mean, if you're a parent, just some of the conversations that happen in the back seat between your kids are an opportunity to practice trying to keep it together, you know? Or like stuff that happens around the house. Last year, we had our hot water heater go out, right? That's a first world problem, I get it, but it's amazing how many things we, we rely on the hot water heater for. That was an opportunity for me to try to practice keeping it together. Or maybe you've experienced something with a car breaking down or, or you've had an unexpected expense or an unexpected guest, somebody who, you know, family member who pops in and wants to stay for a few weeks. That's an opportunity to try to keep it together, right? But, or, and, and I'm sort of being a little bit uh, cavalier about these things because sometimes we go through things that are even a, uh, really big things that make it difficult to try to keep it together. Like maybe you've been through the loss of a loved one or maybe you or your spouse has lost a job or you've dealt with an illness or maybe you've been through a, a natural disaster. I mean, that happened to Wendy and I. We actually got to be right in the middle of a serious natural disaster together. Our, our, this wonderful couple in our church uh, wanted to send us to a pastor's retreat that was being held at a Christian dude ranch in Colorado. Now, I know you can tell just from looking at me that I'm, I'm a real cowboy type, um, and I was a little worried, was I going to fit in there? But, we, but it looked wonderful. It sounded, you know, horseback riding and all this stuff. We were looking forward to it. And we got there to this retreat, the pastor's retreat, and it started off really well, but it started raining and it just didn't stop. And the rain kept getting more and more. And we're on, we're on a mountain, okay? We're actually at a higher elevation than Estes Park. And so when it rains directly on top of you and you're on a mountain and it just doesn't stop, people start to stress out a little bit. We started noticing that the staff there was starting to stress out. And that's just not a good feeling for me, right? When the people who are there all the time start worrying, then I start really getting worried. And they, I, we started watching them taking the industrial brooms, you know, the big brooms, and trying to sweep water away from the property. And that, that didn't look good to me either, you know? 
And uh, after a while, we were, we were in a morning session at this retreat, morning session where they were doing some worship songs and, and we were, uh, you know, having a little service. And we heard this whoosh that just came through and it, it was like, it was, it was just this crazy loud noise. And what it was is there had been a mudslide that had gone through the middle of the, the property that we were on. It actually took out the main road uh, of, the, of the property that we were on. It's so powerful. It took out concrete. I've never seen anything like it. And so all of a sudden, we went from retreat mode to survival mode. And we spent the rest of the, the day, eight hours we spent with the other pastors and pastor's wives who were there and the, and the camp staff trying to redirect water away from the animals and from the buildings and facilities and so forth, just trying to survive. Later that night, it got dark and there was, there was no way to sort of power up, up lights so we could see what we were doing. So the camp staff said, look, we've done all we can do. Just go back to your cabin, try to get some, some rest. And they said, but here's the deal. If another mudslide happens, and it might then what you need to do is run for your life in that direction. <laughs> Speaking of trying to keep it together, um, when somebody says run for your life, right, that just, that just doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy inside, you know? And we were tired. It had been a long day. We, we got to the room, and, and my wife laid down in the bed, and I noticed that she had all of her clothes on and her boots. <laughs> all these years of marriage, I've never seen that before. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm keeping my boots on. She said, you are the man, run for your life, I'm keeping my boots on. And I said, it's been a long day, I'm not, I'm not going to bed with my boots on. And she said, well, if a mudslide happens, I got two little girls at home that I gotta make it home to, so if a mudslide happens, I'm out that door and hopefully you can catch up with me, right? <laughs> that did happen, by the way. Um, so, uh, but interestingly enough, and I'll tell you the rest of the story at the end of the message, but, but, but no joke, we're, we're laying there in bed, and it was so quiet. I mean, there's obviously, it's a retreat center, there's no TV, our phones didn't work, cell service had been completely uh, knocked out by the mudslides that had happened earlier in the day. So it's just quiet, just me and my wife, laying there in bed, just no sound, and all of a sudden I hear this coming from next to me, I hear the, you know, and I'm like, are you okay? No, no, I should tell you something about my, my wife and I. When I'm stressed out, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want, I don't want to have a conversation. I don't want, I want to talk about all the, thing, the bad things that could happen. I don't want to have a discussion about it. I just want to, I want to space out. My wife, on the other hand, she would rather talk about it. She would rather have that conversation. And so we, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting something from her like, you know, this is just really scary. This is just really difficult. It would have been hard for me, but I was going to try to engage with that conversation. I was going to try to hear where she was coming from. So when I asked my wife, you know, is everything okay? I was expecting that. But instead what I got, my wife turned over to me and she said, did you ever see that scene in Titanic where the old couple holds each other as they're going down in the boat? <laughs> I said, I never saw the movie. And then she proceeds to describe for me the scene in the movie where the old couple holds each other as they drown. And I said, somehow this isn't helping me right now in this moment, you know? It's not helping me keep it together. But it's hard sometimes, isn't it, to keep it together. Whether it's a big thing like that or whether it's a small thing that you're going through, sometimes it's just hard to, to not fall apart when life sends a lot of stress your way. So that's what we're going to be talking about. And specifically, we're going to talk about what Jesus has to say about this capacity to keep it together. I want to take you to one of my favorite stories in the Bible that talks about this. Jesus had a lot to say 
by the way, about stress. But we're gonna talk about a story where, where he sort of demonstrates the right thing to do. And this is so, so much one of my favorite stories in the Bible that when I first preached at New Spring almost 10 years ago in 2007, um, this was the passage that I used because I love it so much. So we're gonna go to Luke chapter 10, and Jesus is on a journey, and as they go through, on, on their way on the journey, they go through a village. This would have been Bethany, where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Now, now here in Bethany, Jesus has three friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And, um, and, and Martha, I believe, I can't prove it, but I believe Martha was the firstborn. I know Martha was born before Mary. I can't prove she was born before Lazarus. But if I was a betting man, I would place a bet on it because there are a couple things that just scream firstborn about Martha. One is that she's an achiever. She's a doer. She has to do whatever it is, whatever opportunity comes her way, no matter whether it's gonna kill her trying to do it, she's gonna take it on. That's kind of a firstborn thing. But more than that, and probably the earmark of a firstborn beyond anything else is, Martha is a rule follower. So Martha, Martha understands how the rules work, and she understands that if you do the right thing, then you should get blessed. Now, this is the thing about being a firstborn. If you're a firstborn, you come into the world while your parents are, still have a lot of energy, and they're, they have a lot of rules, right? And by the, time that, by the time the baby of the family comes along, your parents are worn out, you know? And they've already learned a bunch of the rules that they came up with were stupid, right? So they've let a lot of those rules go by the wayside. But if you were the firstborn, the rules weren't stupid. You better follow the rules. And there were a bunch of them. And you learn that that's how the way the world works. You do what you should do, and then you're blessed. If you don't do what you should do, then you're punished. And Martha got this. Now, the thing about this is once you become a rule follower, you also become a fairness enforcer. And those of you who have more than one kid, you know that your eldest is your fairness enforcer. They want to make sure that the systems are followed and that if they have to follow the rules, the younger kid has to follow the rules and whatever they had to go through to make it and survive in this world, the younger kid should have to go through it and survive to make it in this world as well, right? This was Martha. And, and so when we think about Martha in this story, it's really important that you understand that for her, achieving and doing everything right is really important. She's very focused on achieving and making sure she does everything just the way that it's supposed to do. So think about this in the context of Martha opening her home to Jesus. Martha invites Jesus and his disciples, at least 13 people, to her home to have a special dinner. Now, I want you to imagine what you would do if you were to have a special guest like that. Imagine if you were to have the President of the United States and the cabinet over. I mean, imagine all the things that you would be doing to try to prepare your home to get it ready for this special event. I mean, imagine the, the, the cleaning that you would do, because maybe your home is like mine. When I grew up in the, in, the, in the Hoover household, when I grew up, there were two levels of clean. There was regular clean, and then there was company coming over clean, right? Regular clean was clean in our house, as far as I was concerned. But company coming over clean was like white glove clean. Like all the surfaces had to be completely spotless. Everything had to smell good. Everything had to look good, right? And you know if you grew up in a family like this, that when you're getting the house in company coming over clean mode, right, that is the most easy time for you to lose your resilience and your religion, <laughs> right? Everybody's stressed out. Everybody's on, a, on their last Nerve. So I want you to imagine Mary and Martha trying to get this house ready for Jesus. They believe Jesus is the Son of God, just as we do. So they know he's the most important person who has ever been on the face of the planet or ever will be on the face of the planet. Imagine how much you would want to have your house ready for this. But also, as you're thinking about this, remember that Mary and Martha do not have Febreze. They don't have Mr. Clean. They don't have Swiffer. Right? They don't have a vacuum cleaner. They don't have a refrigerator, a freezer, a modern stove. They don't have running water. 
So imagine how much stress they had to be under, the internal pressure they felt to make this be perfect, right? And so Martha wants to make sure this is as, as, as good as it can possibly be, but she also knows this is gonna be a lot of work, and she expects her sister to do the right thing and help her. That's the right thing. She expects her sister to be as much in an achievement mode and as much in a do-everything-right mode as she is. But when Jesus shows up for the meal and the disciples are there for the meal, Martha's just scurrying around trying to make sure everything's right, trying to make sure the table is perfect, trying to make sure that the food is warm, trying to make sure that this is going to be a night everybody will remember. And she realizes she has not seen her sister Mary in the last 45 minutes to an hour. And she's wondering why her sister's AWOL. She goes looking for her sister, and the Bible says that this is where she found her. She found her sister Mary at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Mary wasn't in the kitchen. She wasn't in the dining room. Mary had plopped herself down in the living room at Jesus' feet listening to Jesus teach. And as far as Martha was concerned, that's not fair. Martha's the fairness enforcer. That's not the way this works. If I have to work in the kitchen, you have to work in the kitchen. If I gotta get these details done, you gotta get these details done. Really started to make her mad. It just didn't seem fair to her. And she began to fall apart. I mean, keep in mind, she's been keeping it together all this time, but now she's starting to fall apart. The Bible says because she was distracted by all the preparations that needed to be made, she came to Jesus and asked. Now, keep this in mind. Imagine you're in this room, in this living room. Jesus is there. He's teaching his disciples. Mary's there, and Jesus is doing what he does. He's teaching about the kingdom of God and, and, and giving transformational truth that would change anybody's life who's within earshot. What he's teaching is absolutely amazing. Martha comes in and interrupts him, and this is what she says. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? And now she's going to give the Son of God a direct command. Tell her to help me, right? Now, maybe I just have an a, a overinflated sense of awkwardness. Maybe I feel awkwardness where other people don't feel awkwardness. But I will tell you this. My hunch is you could hear a pin drop in that room at that point. Jesus has been teaching. There's been some, some hustle and bustle and some noise in the room. But when Martha comes in and just lays into him like that, I'm expecting that everybody's looking at Jesus going, what are you going to do now? You ever been in the room when somebody just falls apart? It's a weird moment. It's a strange moment, right? Everybody's waiting to see what Jesus is going to do. And we should, be, we should be thinking about what's Jesus going to do here because the thing about it is when somebody falls apart, there's got to be a diagnosis. There's got to be a reason it happened and there's got to be something that they can do to, to, to make this better. In my office, I have a big purple book. It's the DSM-5. It's the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual of the American Psychological Association. And for clinicians, it's very helpful. You can, you can look at symptoms and try to figure out what's a potentially you know, reasonable diagnosis and then what, maybe what's a best practices way of treating that. In, in many cases, it's a very helpful book. But I have a lot more faith in Jesus than I do in the American Psychological Association. A, a lot more. And when Jesus gives us a diagnosis, we should really pay attention, and especially when Jesus gives us an action plan. And that's what we're getting ready to see. Because Jesus is going to tell Martha what she's struggling with. Ready for this? Jesus says, Martha, here's your problem. You are worried and upset about many things. That's the whole diagnosis. He says, you're worried and upset about many things. And then look at this. This is the answer to the problem. Few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Few things are needed or indeed only one. Bible scholars not not 100% sure exactly how to translate this, but, but pretty much what they've come to a consensus on is that the, the, the original language is telling us that Jesus is saying, in, in most cases, few things are crucial. So you're worried about a lot of things, but in most cases, only few things are crucial. In this case, only one thing is crucial. When that makes sense. 
Mary is listening to Jesus' teaching, and Jesus is saying, in this case, there's only one thing that's crucial, and that's Jesus' teaching. After all, the meal seemed like a big, important thing. It seemed like a big distraction, but keep in mind, Jesus is the same person that's gonna feed thousands of people from one boy's sack lunch, right? So the, the, the details of the meal in this particular case are not that important. What was important was what Jesus was teaching, and he said, Mary's figured out what the one crucial thing here is, and it's not gonna get taken away from her. Now think about this. He says what Mary did right was she figured out where to put her focus. Now, when Jesus diagnosed Martha, he could have told her that what she had was a personality problem, right? Martha, you're a type A. God love you, you know, uh, bless your heart, these type A's, you know how it is, you know, you guys are obsessed with doing an unlimited number of, of things in, in the fastest amount of time possible, you have ill-defined goals, but you're pushing yourself too far, we're just going to help you work through this type A problem that you have. Or you could have said, you know, you have a family of origin problem, you know, genetically, epigenetically, and family system structure-wise, you've just been dealt a, a, a raw deal. We've got to try to help you, you know, migrate from this family of origin that you have into a more healthy model. And he didn't, he didn't say that. He didn't talk about personality, family of origin, psychological makeup. He talked about focus. He said, your issue is a focus problem. So we're going to talk about this one skill. It is a skill, by the way. Focus is a skill. It's a habit. It is not something that just happens. It's not positive focus, focus that's going to help you keep it together in the middle of a difficult circumstance. That's not just something that you're going to wake up tomorrow and just have. It's going to be something you're going to have to work on. So here's what I would like to do. I'd like to show you three problems with Martha's focus that Jesus is trying to tell us about. And then I want to show you three skills, three, three ways to work on the focus that you have in life that will help you uh, develop some resilience. Okay, so here's the, pro the first problem. The first problem that Martha had was that she was getting dragged around by trying to do too much. Focus isn't just a, a thought style, it's a lifestyle. At some point we have to determine whether we are focused not only in how we think but in what we do. How many of you are familiar with the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Whether it's Kelly Clarkson or Nietzsche, wherever you got it from, The truth is, though, that while, it, while it's catchy, it's profoundly scientifically untrue. What doesn't kill you does not always make you stronger. Sometimes what doesn't kill you injures you pretty bad, right? And some of us think, oh, this is okay that I keep leaning into more and more, and I keep doing more and more, and I keep saying yes to more and more because what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. No, it's not true. What doesn't kill you may, act, may, may nearly kill you, and you may find that you're weaker as a result of it. That's what happened with Martha. Her mental focus was weaker because she was trying to do way too much. Check out what, what the Bible says. The Bible says Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Bible scholars tell us that this word distracted means to get dragged around or it means to get pulled apart. How many of us know what it's like to have so many things on your ledger? You've got so many things that you're trying to get done that you feel like you're being stretched about five different ways. You feel like you're being dragged around all the time and that your life is not your own. That is what Jesus was telling Martha. He's like, your life is not your own. You're getting dragged around by all these details. You're getting pulled apart. And it's messing with your ability to focus. And then check out what he says here. He says, you are worried and upset about many things. A big part of your problem is too many things, too many issues, too many things that you're trying to do. But only few things are needed or indeed only one. Now, now this is really key. Jesus is trying to tell us something about the demand for attention in your life, the demand for your energy. And, and here's what he's trying to say. I, I made a big mistake for a lot of years in my life, and that is that I, I knew that 
when, when things demanded my attention, when things demanded my resources, there was definitely good stuff out there and there was definitely bad stuff. And I sort of had a green light, red light approach. If it was something that was inherently evil or bad that was calling for my attention, you pump the brakes. I don't wanna invest in that. I don't wanna give my energy and resources to that. So I understood that. My problem was this. I assumed that if it wasn't bad, if, it, if there wasn't something wrong with what was demanding my attention, then it must be good and it must deserve my attention and my resources and my energy. Think for a second about the gateway to you, to getting a piece of you, to getting some of your time and energy. Think of it as though it's like the front door of your home. And when something demands your attention, it's like it rings the doorbell of that door. My question for you is this, what is your policy for deciding when to answer the door and when to not answer the door? See, my problem is I used to take sort of the, you know, the trick or treat approach to answering the door. You know how it is on Halloween, all the kids come and, and ding dong, they ring, they ring your doorbell, right? And my approach to that is, you know, you answer the door, you try to meet the demand. You got the big bowl of candy there, you answer the door and try to, try to make sure all the kids get candy. A lot of us, when the doorbell of our attention rings, we do the same thing. We always answer the door and try to meet the demand, whatever happens to be there, so long as it's not something that's bad. But Jesus is telling us there's more than just good stuff and bad stuff. There's a third category. So if we want to move towards the good stuff, that's a positive. If we pump the brakes when it comes to the bad stuff, and that's what we should do, we shouldn't move toward that. Jesus is saying, oh, by the way, there's a third category. We need to exercise caution with stuff that doesn't ultimately matter because there is a third category. Just because something is bad doesn't mean that it's ultimately good and it deserves our attention. One of the most important things I can ever tell you is that not everything that demands your attention deserves your attention, right? And beyond that, my graph is actually, actually, actually still not accurate because Jesus said, yes, good stuff, bad stuff, stuff that ultimately doesn't matter. But remember, he said only a few things are crucial. So that means that there's bad stuff and then there's a whole lot of stuff that ultimately doesn't matter and just a little bit of good stuff. And he said, what Mary's done that is so powerful with her focus is that she's found the good stuff. As a matter of fact, you may have a translation that says Mary's found the good part. Um, he says Mary's found the good stuff and that's the zone that she's in. That's where she's putting her focus. So our focus skill number one, if you wanna work on, the, on, on resilience, the first skill that you need to work on is this. We need to be ready to say no to the unnecessary in order to say yes to the crucial. Listen, there's always gonna be some unnecessary stuff in your life. That's okay, that's not, a, that's not a problem. It only becomes a problem when we start having to say no to things that are crucial because we're saying yes to too many things that are unnecessary. That's what was happening with Martha. It wasn't that it was wrong for her to wanna to prepare a meal. It wasn't that it was wrong for her to want all those details to be what they, you know, something nice and, and a wonderful meal for Jesus and his disciples. It was that in order to do that, she was having to say no to stuff that was way more important. Some of us are so fixated on so many details that seem like they have to get done, but in the process, our family is losing the best part of us, and, and, and people that count on us are losing the best part of us, and we're losing our ability to focus and to keep it together. So we need to be ready to say no to the unnecessary in order to say yes to the crucial. So we said the first problem that Martha had was she was getting dragged around by doing too much. Focus isn't just a thought style, it's a lifestyle, right? And problem number two is this. Jesus was telling Martha that she was stuck in an anxiety loop. And this is one I really understand because I struggle with anxiety. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, you are worried, we're going to come back to that in a second, and upset. You're worried and upset about many things. 
right? Now, this word worried, Bible scholars tell us it's the idea of brooding about something that's negative. Now, we don't use the term brooding very much, but it means to get stuck on it, to dwell there, and to keep telling yourself the same thing over and over and over again. So what Jesus was saying is you're getting stuck on the negative, you're getting stuck on something that's not what you want it to be, and you keep telling yourself things about that over and over again. Then we combined it with, the, we combined it with this word upset, and it really makes sense, because this word upset means to be alarmed. What Jesus is saying is you're not just focusing on the alarming stuff here, you're telling yourself alarming messages over and over and over again. You're telling yourself that, that I'm not going to think this is a good dinner. You're telling yourself that the food's going to get cold and there's not going to be enough. You're telling yourself that the table's not going to be set well. You're telling yourself that people are going to walk away from this and call it an epic fail. And you're telling yourself that over and over and over again until it's absolutely impossible for you to keep it together. Some of you remember in week one of this series, I brought out this fire alarm, and I said that in your brain there's a, there's a, a kind of a, a fire alarm that helps you if you're in a real life and death emergency. Just as in this building, there are these fire alarms all over the building, and if, if the fire alarm gets triggered, we go from doing all the complex things that we do on this property to just trying to make sure that everybody survives and is okay. We've got the same sort of system in our brain, that when the fire, when the fire alarm goes off in our brain, all the complex things that our brain normally is busy doing gets put on hold just so that we can survive, and at that moment, our brain fun- shifts functioning into a zone where all we can do is either fight or run away. And what Jesus was saying is, Martha, not only are you pulling the fire trigger for things that are not really life and death emergencies, you keep telling yourself alarming things so that just about the time you would calm down, just about the time you would come out of this and realize it's going to be okay, you tell yourself something else that's alarming and you hit the fire alarm again. And he said, you are keeping yourself in an anxiety loop. And he said, "In in, in your own head and in your own mind, you're absolutely on the edge of sanity consistently because you're threatening yourself. So many of us, we, we, we go to that worst case scenario place and we keep telling ourselves the worst case scenario over and over again and that makes it so hard for us to keep it together. And what we need to understand, if this is a problem that we struggle with, is first of all, we need to understand this basic principle about our thought life and that is that there is a big difference between focus and awareness. There's a big difference between focus and awareness. Sometimes my wife and I will go to these restaurants, uh, you know, we'll go on a date night or something, we'll go to a restaurant where they have these television sets on, about eyeline on the, on the wall behind my wife, right? So I'm trying to talk to my wife, but there are these television sets behind her. And usually they're playing sports, and I gotta be honest with you, I'm not even really into sports. The issue is that there's movement on a screen, and because I'm a member of the male species, any movement on a screen just attracts my attention like a magnet, right? So I'm in the process of talking to my wife, I'm halfway through a sentence, I'm like, oh yeah, I know that we really need to do this. Right? And this is, like I said, this is a male-female thing. They've done research with this. They, they, bring, they wanted to see if this was the case from birth. They, they, brought, in a male, they brought in a boy and a, and a girl into the nursery right after they'd been born, and they put adults all the way around the bassinet for, for each of these children to see how these kids, these, these newborns, make eye contact with, with uh, adults. And the little girl, as the, all these adults are around her bassinet, the little girl looks up at the faces and just stares into the faces of the adults who are around. And then they look at the little boy. They bring the little boy in, and he does the same thing for a minute. He looks at the faces of the adults around the crib, and then he sees the ceiling fan. <laughs> it's like that for me in those restaurants, right? I'm talking to my wife, and then I see, oh, that's soccer. I wonder what the rules are in soccer, you know? <laughs> and uh, so at that point, I've got a decision to make. Either I'm going to be aware of Wendy and focused on the TV, I'm going to be aware of the TV and focused on Wendy. 
that's my choice. I have to make a decision, right? I can't make the TVs not be there, but I can determine what's going to be, what I'm going to be focused on and what I'm going to be aware of. Now, here's the important thing. If you struggle with anxiety in this room, and anxiety is a big factor in struggling with resilience. If you struggle with anxiety in this room, you've already learned that you can't make the anxious thoughts and the stress just go away. You can't just make it just go away, right? Because the brain does not respond well to brute force. We can't just tell ourselves, I'm not going to think that, right? Because if I were to tell you right now in this room, whatever you do, don't think of a big red circle. Seriously, honestly, don't think of a big red circle. It's the worst thing you could possibly do, right? Most of you in this room, how many of you are seeing a big red circle right now, right? Yeah, exactly, right? Because the brain doesn't respond to, to brute force really well. What we need to do is understand that it's not a matter of, uh, we don't need to tell ourselves, I can't ever think an anxious thought, I can't ever think a stressful thought, I can't ever let those things enter my, my awareness. The issue is we need to keep them in awareness, but we need to keep focus on the good stuff. We need to keep our focus on the good part. So skill number two, focus skill number two, is we need to allow anxiety to fall from focus to awareness. When we recognize that we're starting to tell ourselves that alarming message over and over and over and over and over again, we need to say, well, I'm not gonna be able to make that, that thought go completely away, but I'm gonna let it drift out of focus to awareness and I'm gonna focus in on something that's gonna be helpful and not something that's gonna be destructive, right? So that's focus skill number two. All right, so we've said number one, Mary, excuse me, Martha had allowed herself to get dragged around by too many things. We said number two, she was stuck in an anxiety loop. Here's the third thing that she did. The third problem was that she was losing track of what really matters. She's losing track of what really matters. And this is a, a perspective thing, right? Because this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, Mary has chosen what is better. Remember we said Mary's chosen the good part, and I like that a lot uh, in that translation. It will not be taken away from her. So what that means is that Mary understood there was bad stuff, there was stuff that ultimately doesn't matter. But this is important. Notice that the Bible says she chose the good part. Right? That means that Mary found the good stuff, and she made an intentional choice to zone in there. That was her decision. So focus skill number three, I'm gonna go ahead and give you this really quick and then we'll talk about it and we'll be done for the morning. Focus skill number three is that we need to fight for perspective. The, the, the important thing about it is that perspective does not just happen on its own. We have to fight for it. We have to work hard to make sure that we zone into the good part. And here's what I mean by that. My first church job before I came to New Spring, I worked at Edmonds First Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. And one of my tasks was uh, I was over the television ministry. And so I, I did work sometimes with uh, images and video. And when you work with images and video, a lot of times you'll have to go in and fix a blemish or a defect or an issue somewhere within the footage or within the image. And so you'll have to zoom in to airbrush or to work with whatever needs to be adjusted. And if you've ever done this kind of work, you know that the risk is that you kind of lose track of where you are in the image. Or you start to lose track of how what you're doing in this little zone Zone is affecting the overall image. So what do you do? If, you're, if you've ever done this before, you know the answer. You have to zoom out to see the big picture again, and then you have to pick where it is that you're going to go in and work now, and you zoom back in. You zoom out, make a choice, and then zoom in. And this is what, this is maybe the biggest skill of resilience that you can ever learn. The biggest skill of resilience is once we start to get lost because we're zoned into something that's not being productive for us, we need to zoom out and try to look at the big picture, and then we need to decide what is it that we're going to choose where are we going to focus? The, the big picture is, is something that we're going to be aware of, but what is our focus? What, what's going to be our focal point? And then we zoom in and we lock in there. That's what Jesus said Mary did 
that made her successful, that helped her keep it together. After all, Mary wanted the dinner to be good for Jesus just like Martha did. Somehow Mary kept it together and Martha didn't. Why? Because Mary zoomed out and she realized this is my opportunity to hear the King of Kings and Lord of Lords talk about what it means to live in the kingdom. And you know what? I just can't see how working in the kitchen is any more important than hearing what he has to say. And she zoomed into that and Jesus said, this is why she kept it together and her sister didn't. I... uh, told you the beginning of the story of being stuck in that. By the way, the, the mudslide thing that I was talking about at the beginning of the message, there's a name for this now. You know, there's, they, this is called the Great Colorado, Flood of, Great Colorado Flood of 2013. I told Wendy, I said, and we've actually lived through a name disaster now, you know, the Great Colorado Flood. So we were laying in, in, in bed after I'd heard the lovely story from Titanic, and um, Wendy in her boots and, and me not so much. And uh, we hear the sound. It sounded like a freight train going right past our cabin. And our cabin started, started to shake. And I, I heard what sounded like fireworks, just like pop, 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 pop. And what we were hearing was uh, the big mudslide of the evening. The biggest mudslide was happening at that moment. A nine-foot wall of mud was coming down the mountain that we were on there. We were just a little bit higher than Estes Park in elevation. You can look at this on Google. There's actually images of this mountain that we were, that we were on. It looks like, like God took a big razor and just shaved a big swath out of the, out of the mountain. And the, and the things that I heard that sounded like fireworks were trees breaking under the weight of the, the mud. And so my wife, true to her word, was out the door, right? <laughs> and uh, I, I caught up pretty quick. And it was one of the, it was the, craziest, night, one of the craziest nights of my life. We, we bounced around from place to place that was supposed to be safe. And they were trying to figure out what was the safest place for us to be. We spent the night just, you know, really praying that we would make it through because there were no guarantees about whether there would be more mudslides or not. And uh, we woke up that next morning, and they, they kind of gave us the grim news. One of the things was the best place for us to be was in Estes Park. That would be the closest they could get us to Denver to start trying to evacuate us out. But the problem was that all the roads from, Estes, from, from where we were to Estes Park had actually been uh, demolished. Sections of them had been demolished by the, by the mudslide. So it was no easy way to get us out. So they told us they were going to load us up in vans. They were going to take us to the part of the road where the mudslide had happened. It literally looked like, if you can picture a section of highway where it looks like part of it's been torn off like a tortilla chip, that's, that's what it was like. And they took us to that side of the road and they said, then we're gonna have you guys walk around the, 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 that road and then meet up with buses and the buses will take you into Estes Park and then we'll take you to a Red Cross shelter. Now, I have to tell you, I'm thankful for the Red Cross. I never pictured myself in a Red Cross shelter. I guess nobody does, but I never, I never, I never thought about that happening. So at this point, I'm thinking, could this trip have been any worse. This has been the worst trip ever, and I'm muttering to myself, and I'm so just frustrated about the whole deal, and definitely was not in a very resilient place. And, uh, you know, my wife and I were getting our bags together, and it's a Christian camp retreat center in in a Christian facility, and one of the heads of the facility there said, I think we should get around together in a circle and hold hands and pray. And I would like to tell you that as your pastor, I was the first person saying, that's exactly what we should do. I was not in that frame of mind. I was still muttering. I was like, oh, great, we're going to do this now. And I don't even like holding other people's hands and, you know, (laughs) stand in this circle and pray. And, you know, I'm not, I wasn't, I was not in a good frame of mind. A little 21, 22-year-old guy who was one of the staffers that they can't begin to pray. And he began to thank God for the fact that none of the livestock had died. He began to thank God for the fact that the buildings were still intact. He thanked God for the fact that, 
us, you know, eight pastors and pastor's wives had been able to work together as a team and that nobody had been injured and there were no broken bones and that we were all okay. And he thanked God for the fact that there were vehicles that were gonna take us to the place where the road had broken. And he thanked God for the buses that were gonna come and meet us. He thanked God for the Red Cross shelter. He thanked God for the people that ran the Red Cross shelter. He thanked God for the blankets at the Red Cross shelter. And I wasn't even, I wasn't even getting a little bit upset at the fact that this prayer was lasting for like 15 minutes because I was thinking about how much I had been zoomed into the wrong part of the picture. This guy was reminding me the power of zooming out and picking the important part and zooming in there. And I remember him saying, thank you for the fact that the Bible says you'll never leave us or forsake us. And, and, and I'm in overtime, but I wanna leave you this, I wanna leave you this point and we'll be done. See, what Jesus was trying to tell Martha, what, what did he mean about one thing is crucial? One thing is absolutely non-negotiable. I think what he wanted her to understand is that anything that we put our faith in other than Jesus runs the risk of leaving us disappointed and falling apart. Listen, if you put your faith in, in, in finances, there's gonna come a moment where you may have some financial difficulty and it's gonna be easy to fall apart. If you put your faith in being like Martha did, if you put your faith in being a performer and doing everything the right way and making sure that you achieve, there are gonna be some moments where achieving is just not gonna be possible and you're gonna be tempted to fall apart. Listen, if, if you put your faith in having perfectly behaved kids, there are gonna be some moments where that doesn't happen and your faith is gonna fall apart. But you know what? Jesus is trying to remind us that when we put our faith and trust in him, the Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When we put our faith and trust in the God that created us and who sustains us, that we're never gonna be disappointed and we can keep it together. If we zoom into what it is that he's trying to do in our life, we can make it through anything that we go through no matter how difficult. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you love us and that you are the source of our resilience in difficult times. Help us to be focused on the most important things. Help us to be zoomed into what you're doing in our lives. Help us to say no when we need to, to too many things that demand our time and attention. And help us not to go to that anxious place where we keep telling ourselves those alarming thoughts. Help us to remember that we can trust in you no matter what. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next week for Jesus Life.